I'm Randy, the pastor half of the podcast, and my friend Kyle is a philosopher. This podcast hosts conversations at the intersection of philosophy, theology, and spirituality. We also invite experts to join us, making public a space that we've often enjoyed off-air around the proverbial table with a good drink in the back corner of a dark pub. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. I loved the guests that we spoke to today. We, You saw on the title, it's no, no mystery. We're talking to James K.A. Smith. Jamie Smith, he's a philosopher at Calvin University, and um, I, I just have grown to love him just from reading this book which blew me away. Genuinely loved this book, and I'm going to recommend it to everyone. Mm -hmm. And just talking with Jamie, he's just a winsome, wonderful, smart, articulate, intellectual guy. It was I could have talked for another couple hours. Easily. Yeah. yeah. At first, we got a little confused about time zones and thought we had more time with him. And we're like, oh, this is going to be great. But unfortunately, <laughs> we realized we only had an hour, but we filled it up, and it's fantastic not exaggerating i cried more than once uh, reading through this book it's it's philosophy but it's uh, it's not mm -hmm. <laughs> what you're not used to with philosophy it's all about living in the now inhabiting time as the title says uh, recognizing that you're a person who carries a history with you and that is always moving forward into a future um, and it's the style of writing is it kind of embodies a lot of what i aim for in my own writing honestly it's poetic and it's contemplative, mm -hmm. and it's spiritual, but it's also, I mean, it doesn't shirk on the philosophy. There's mm -hmm. a lot of kind of really good exegesis of some pretty difficult-to-read philosophers. I mean, he's dealing with people like Husserl and Heidegger and people that really give you a headache, Kierkegaard, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, when you try to read through them. And so if you're maybe a little intimidated by those thinkers, this might actually be a decent place to start to, to get an entrance into some of the main themes of their thought. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it's also the kind of thing you would just sit down and read snippets of over you know, some quiet moments in the afternoon over like a month or something. Yeah. I think that's kind of what it's intended for. Yeah. And it would suit that purpose fantastically. Yeah, no, I mean, he is what he said he was, which is a translator of philosophy for the church. And as a non-philosopher speaking here, uh, he did a brilliant job at taking complex, high-minded philo philosophical concepts and thoughts and making it understandable for me. Yeah. So I appreciated it. And it's, it's a short a, book. It's less yeah. than 200 pages. Oh, so. yeah. The book, by the way, is How to Inhabit Time by James K.A. Smith. And I think it's a it's a book about how to live in a contemplative way. And um, I promise everyone, your your life will be better for having read it. Like you're, yeah. the way you look at the moment, the way you look at yourselves, the way you look at... I didn't get to ask this, even though I kind of regret it. We could only ask so many questions, but he has four kids. But <laughs> a lot of it, especially the first chapter, freaked the shit out of me as far as being a parent, mm. right? Like this idea of throneness. I don't know what yeah, philosopher yeah. that was that talks about how we are not, we're, we're not these, we don't just kind of combust out of nowhere and can kind of, you know, manifest our own destiny and do whatever we want. We are actually formed by choices, hundreds, thousands of choices that were made before us. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of a product of our history. We're a product of our family. We're a product of our parents. And I, as a son, I resonate with that. As yeah. a parent, it freaks me out majorly. Yeah. I can see that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of those times I cried might have been related to something yeah. like that. Because you do, you carry a history in with you and pretending that you can cut it off and just start from scratch is just that. It's a pretense. I yeah. mean, it'll just surface in other ways that will require therapy later on Absolutely. if you don't deal with it head on. And it's one thing to talk about myself as being a product of my family, my family's history, what they did, what the choices they made. But then to think about how I'm, I'm passing on yeah. some of that stuff is both inspiring and beautiful, but also 
terrifying mm -hmm. in many ways. Yeah. So we'll let we'll, we'll we'll launch into the into the interview briefly, but we'll do what we do around here, which is try a delicious spirit or what we think will be a delicious spirit. I'm pretty confident this one's going to be delicious. Let's be honest, we've had this before. It's <laughs> yeah. delicious, not on the air. So Kyle, what are we what are we tasting? Yeah, so this is called Elijah Craig Toasted Barrel. So Toasted Barrel is that thing that everybody's doing. Well, not everybody, but it's kind of a popular thing. You take the normally aged whiskey and then you finish it in an extra charred mm -hmm. fresh barrel and it just puts a whole lot more oaky woodiness into it it gives it some spice generally some strong vanilla flavor they generally just taste richer and more complex than yeah. other kinds of bourbons that have the same age on them is this barrel proof no this is comes in at 94 proof so elijah craig also makes a barrel proof which is also freaking fantastic okay, that's that's and what i also have a couple bottles so <laughs> <laughs> so in future maybe that'll make an nice, appearance right. as well well cheers cheers I mean, the nose smells so much like Woodford and like the really oaky bourbons I love so much. Mm. It's a mouthful of sweet, cinnamony deliciousness. Yes. 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 <laughs> it just keeps going. I love that about this bourbon. It just holy doesn't stop. Holy Oh, it's, it brings, it transports me to autumn and tart apples, spices like cinnamon, like you said, Elliot. And just this beautiful, oaky, smoky potpourri that I want to just, I want, I want more of this. This is delicious. Yeah. You say autumn and that's right there, man. That's, yeah. that's so accurate. I'm going to revisit this when the leaves change for sure. I mean, so when I see Elijah Craig, I'm instantly like, oh, that's the bottom shelf. I know, that's, but they have know. so much good stuff that people aren't aware of or just overlook. That's more limited release, a little harder to find. But if you can snag it, man, it's totally worth it. And this is not super cheap, right? Uh, this will run you 70 to $80 probably. In if my you're world, that's find not super it. cheap. Not super cheap, but easily, easily worth it in my book. <laughs> we have a different book. <laughs> but I'm glad I have a friend who thinks this is easily worth it in his book. Because <laughs> yeah. this is delicious. This Works is one of, out well for us. This is one of my favorite bourbons I've had in a while, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just so, it's smooth is a stupid thing to say about a whiskey, but it's so easy to drink this. It just, there's no sharp edges or anything. It's why I prefer bourbon over any other whiskey. This is it right here. It's got all that complexity. It's got all the, like you said, Ali, it's sweet but spicy. Mm -hmm. It's got the full range, which I don't know if you scotch lovers would, would disagree with me, mm -hmm. but I haven't seen that so much in scotch, certainly in Canadian or Irish whiskey. This has so much flavor and character. Yep. Everything from the brightness of orange to the depth of pumpkin pie spices. Yeah. So there we go. Yeah. Autumn. Yep. I, I think we're on theme here. That's yep. what it is. Yeah. Yep. Well, sure. one more time. This is the Elijah Craig Toasted Barrel. Cheers. Well, Dr. James K.A. Smith, thank you so much for joining us on A Pastor and a Philosopher Walking to a Bar. Yeah, this is uh, this is like a, a prime opportunity for me. You guys, I where's the bar is the only thing I'm wondering. <laughs> it's right here, man. Right here. Oh, the bar. <laughs> there there it is. Yeah. Elijah Craig is not a bad opener. Very good. Are you? Do you? Uh, do you enjoy bourbons or whiskeys, Jamie? Very much. Oh, what's your uh, favorites? I, I, I'm, I'm I enjoy many spirits. Actually, I'm more of a cocktail guy than a sipper. But um, my my uh, favorite jam right now is what my best friend Mark introduced me to, Uncle Nearest. I've heard of this. Yes. I've heard of it too. So this has a really interesting backstory. So apparently this guy was the first master distiller at Jack Daniels, literally taught Jack Daniel how to distill. And then they kind of washed him from their history until just recently. Because he was black. Because he was a slave. 
Yes. Yeah. This yeah. I've heard. Yep. Okay. Fun. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a good really, whiskey. it's a great, great bourbon. I'm glad to see it revived in that way. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, so now we know what your favorite whiskey is, but can you tell our listeners just a little bit about you, Jamie, your, your background, what you're doing, where this book came from? The book is called How to Inhabit Time. And I can tell you, Kyle and I loved it. Yeah. I mean, just really oh, loved thank it. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. Give our listeners just a little bit about James K.A. Smith's world. Yeah, my my uh, day job, so to speak, is I'm professor of philosophy at Calvin University, just across the lake from you guys. Uh, I've been here for 20 years. I teach, my training is uh, continental philosophy, French and German phenomenology. Uh, but I have, I guess, for probably the past 15 years or so, sort of as a writer, leaned into doing more work as a translator of philosophy for the church, mm. I would say, um, because I think... Uh, philosophy offers a lot of resources for spiritual counsel, and this book really uh, kind of grows out of that. The other, the other uh, sort of passion uh, work that I have is I'm editor in chief of something called Image Journal, which is a quarterly journal of art and faith, uh, literature, poetry, visual arts. Uh, so the imagination. Uh, means a lot to me as well. And I hope How to Inhabit Time reflects some of that uh, investment in poetry, mm-hmm. songwriting, it sure does. and so on. Yeah, the quotes. You could do a whole book just on those quotes. But you, you said something that fascinated me. As a philosopher, you said you want to translate philosophy for the church, um, into the church. Tell us about why you think philosophy is important for the church. Yeah, I mean, I, I think philosophy has always been a spiritual endeavor. Hmm. Uh, I think it's its most ancient history is that it was a spiritual endeavor. So when Socrates is inviting people to live an examined life, or when Pierre Hadot talks about the spiritual exercises that comprise philosophy, that's kind of the school of thought that I come from. I'm not so interested in logic chopping and you know solving little puzzles to get tenure. I'm interested in philosophy as the pursuit of wisdom. And um, it seems to me that there has been a long and ancient conversation between Christian spirituality and philosophy. My my kind of uh, patron saint, if you will, is St. Augustine. And is he a philosopher? Is he a theologian? Is he a pastor? He's and the answer is yes. He's, mm. he's all of those things. So I, I've, I've just come to realize, I think, um, uh, you know, the, the American church could never be said to be guilty of thinking too much. <laughs> uh, and and so it seems to me that philosophy also represents a little bit of an infusion of reflective capacity that the church is in, in need of. So I've always just tried to bring, I think, what are some of the treasures of insight from philosophy down a few shelves so that it could be more accessible because I think it changes how you live. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I think philosophy is ultimately about how you live a way of life. And so it's trying to be in the service of the church as a philosopher in that way. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much exactly what we're trying to do on this podcast. So yeah. Kind of yeah no, I, wonder, idea, I, I, I love the whole setup. Yeah. Yeah. If I were to, to describe this book um, again, just really genuinely loved it, was sucked up into that world that you created. And it just called me to notice common little things around me in greater ways. It drew me into the present moment, into looking at green leaves. And, you know, there's just so much to it that I loved about this book, Jamie. But um, I would call it kind of a guidebook for contemplative living in many ways. Did you have that intention? Did you have that in mind? And if so, what 
what does contemplative living look like for Jamie Smith? Hmm. Thank you very much for that, by the way. I appreciate it. Yes. I think it is, it's about living both with intention and attention. So I, I think what the book is trying to do is to kind of cultivate a posture with respect to ourselves, our world, our environments, which then helps us to just pause and slow down and attend to realities and to realize things about the histories we've inherited, about the futures we're hoping for, to sort of zoom in and be slowed down enough that you have that capacity to attend carefully and closely, and then to emerge from that with new intentionality to say, this is what it means to live as somebody who is aware now that I am a mortal, that I have a history, that that I have an inheritance that has been passed down to me, that I have things I need to reckon with. So I think, yeah, that combination of attention and intention maybe is a way of describing it. I like it. Excellent. So let's dig into the book a little bit. Before I do that, though, I want to say we could easily spend this entire interview talking about music. And yeah. part of me wants to just ditch the whole outline let's and just it. talk about music. <laughs> like reading through this, I, I we're eerily similar in some ways. And we have some mm. very similar tastes in music. At one point, mm. you said something and then you had a footnote. And I was going to look up the footnote and I thought, I bet $100 he quotes Jason Isbell right here. <laughs> and sure enough, that was the footnote. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. And by the way, the line was originally there, but eventually I can't tell you just to, so you know how much I love music. I paid thousands of dollars to include these songs. No, really? Because the permission, it costs a lot of money just to include to the include, lyrics. But I just, the, the, the two in particular, I didn't know how to do the chapters I wanted to do without that Brandy Carlisle song yep. and without that Ava Brothers song. Yeah. And so I was like, whatever it takes, this is my, you know, wow. devotion to the arts kind of thing. But yeah, I, I appreciate the, the resonance. Okay. Well, well let's, let's, let's just make get a, into that question. Well, let's right make away. a note to get into it because okay. I don't want to like waste, okay. waste too much time on that. But, but, Definitely, let's try to get back to that towards the end. So I want to ask you about something you say at the beginning of the book, and it kind of comes up a, a few times after that, too. So you talk about growing up in a dispensationalist context that was superficially fascinated with history, but in actuality committed to a kind of ahistoricity, but unacknowledged. And so this reminded me of one of my favorite novels, which I was happy to see came up later uh, in your book, and that's Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. Changed my life. Loved the novel. Mm. Kind of want to be the main character when I grew up. Uh, and his name, he's an old Congregationalist minister named John Ames. And he says at one point, I wrote a paper like based around this idea at one point, he talks about being at home in the world is how he puts it, and how it took him a long time to, to get to that place. But as he's reflecting on his long life, he finds that he's gotten there, and he's able to see certain things as beautiful that wouldn't have even caught his attention before. Like, he sees some, some you know, youths kind of rough roughhousing and goofing off or whatever, and he, he just sees kind of a deep, divine beauty in it. Um, and that, when I first read it, kind of struck me, that idea of being at home in the world, struck me as unchristian. Because yeah. I had been enculturated in the church that I spent most of my youth in to think that I'm a traveler on the earth. I have a true home somewhere else. I should never get too attached to anything, especially things that are merely of temporal significance, you know, which just means fleeting. But that book really kind of reoriented me and it made me think about what it means to be a creature and what significance individual actions and events have. Do you think, is this what you're trying to do in your book? Is that consonant with what you're trying to get at? Very much, very much. And and I would say to, to set it up, 
Yes. So I think a lot of renditions of American Christianity, particularly ones that have been shaped by dispensationalism, are mostly waiting for history to end. Right. Do you know what I mean? Are waiting to get skyhooked mm-hmm. out of out of time uh, and to escape the world. So, yeah, you would never you know, you're just a passing through. Whereas, you know, my my theological framework is shaped by both the Augustinian Catholic tradition and then this sort of continental reform tradition of which I'm a part, Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bovink. And for us, it's it's about a theology of creation that says, no, wait a second, this is affirmed as very good. And in many ways, I think my book is trying to think through a theology of creaturehood, an affirmative theology of creaturehood, and why that entails an affirmation of our temporality, our historicity. So it will also change your eschatology. Mm-hmm. It's not It's not like you're not longing for kingdom come, but the, the coming of the kingdom is not an utter burning up of everything that's come before. So as my friend Rich Mao likes to point out, you know, in Isaiah 60, the ships of Tarshish sail right into the kingdom of God. There's there's a there's mm-hmm. a continuity that allows that kind of flow. And uh I think you're right that sometimes I forget actually how many people still inhabit that atemporal, you know, I we're floating above it all kind so of many. posture. Yeah. Yeah, or they they are functionally at home in the world, but they feel guilty about it. <laughs> Right. They enjoy more than anything else campfires with their friends and, you know, all the stuff that humans like. You know, if you look into any ancient philosophy about what a picture of the good life is, they're remarkably similar. I remember, you know, I show my my students what Confucius said about what a, a, you know, an ideal day looks like. And it's just goofing off with your friends. You know, (laughs) everybody knows that. But like we're enculturated in this tradition to pretend that it's something else. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's really good. And it, and in some ways, they don't have theological permission to affirm what yet their own embodiment kind of is saying yes to. Yeah. So I want to ask you about a puzzle that you raise. And I don't know if I just want to get your get your take on unpacking this because it's kind of a thing that you mentioned and then move on. So it's about being born again. Uh, and it's related to something that's kind of bothered me. And I'm not sure what I think about it. So uh, you mentioned that being this idea of being born again is miraculous precisely because it sounds like an impossible thing. How I, as a being that carries its history with it, that's a big theme of the book, right? I am a temporal being, which means I'm formed by my history. It's not a thing back there. It's a thing that I carry around with me all the time. So how could I, with a history, begin again? <laughs> Uh, and, and this, you know, confuses uh, Nicodemus or whoever it is that Jesus says it to. And it confuses me, frankly. Um, and I want to connect it to the idea of resurrection, because I think the same paradox yeah. happens there. And I think in that case, it has particularly disturbing implications, at least for me, in thinking about how an afterlife could be good or mm. just or, or mm. how we can make sense of providence. Right. How because mm. I don't believe <laughs> and, this is both philosophical, but also deeply personal for me. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that making things great in the end is actually any kind of response to things having been bad in the past. I'm very much, uh, you know, Iv- Ivan Karamazov kind of thinker in that way. Like, making things better doesn't change the fact that they were once evil. And so, 
if we carry the history of all of the evil and suffering into whatever kind of afterlife they may be or into this new life in Christ, uh, and we call it a new beginning, I just don't understand that. It's, it's a kind of paradox that I don't see my way through ethically, frankly. And so, yeah, I, and I, I think, uh, I, I, I can appreciate the, you know, the skepticism about it. I think that's right. I think it's, it's not just a matter though of sort of, <laughs> it's not a, some sort of Jedi mind trick. It's like, no, you have a new life now. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not just, a, it's not just a descriptive pronouncement. There's something because the mechanism here is, by the way, this answer is not going to satisfy you. No but worries. Let me, let me try to articulate where <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the answer is bound up with the dynamics of grace. Hmm. And so grace isn't just now somebody pronounces a new status on who I am. Rather, there is some kind of, I almost want to say re-enchantment. There's something that gets reconfigured. And probably if we had more time, you would want to talk about ontological implications of this, but we'll just set that aside for a sec. But there's there is a there is the sense that there is a reconfiguration of my being in the world such that I have possibilities and capacities living forward that on the one hand take up what has been my past that that bears forward what I've inherited but does not reduce me to those possibilities and has Honestly, I do think the language of healing would have to be one of those things that that you would talk about. So I, I wouldn't ever want it to just be framed as, well, no, we just said this is a happy ending, but rather that there's a sort of new possibilities that are infused. I, I suppose there's there's probably a parallel conversation to be had here between, say, Afro-pessimism, which looks at the long history of anti-Blackness and says, I don't ever expect this to ever be different, mm -hmm. ta Coates, yeah. versus, say, a Cornell West who says, well, no, I am a prisoner of hope because I still keep imagining that despite all of that, we could be differently going forward and and it's it's trying to live into that space and possibility i don't i'm not saying that i think it's rational or mm, okay. predictable or even something that you could merely extrapolate from what has come from the past that yep. is why there is a kind of miraculous element to it which is which is scandalous i sure. realize yep. i don't know if that, that as i say that won't address the concern but it might at least fill in some of the picture I, yeah. don't, I don't care what Kyle thinks. I like the answer. <laughs> um, Jamie, in the, it, also in the introduction, you talk about faith in Christianity being more about how we live than what we believe. I, I've, yeah. I guess you could say I got in trouble. I was preaching through the parables for the last year and get confronted over and over again by Jesus saying things like, hey, there's two sons. A father has two sons, asked both of them to go work in the fields. One said, yep, I'll do it, but didn't. The other said, no, get lost. Um, I don't care about your fields. And then he goes and does does the work, which one do, did what his father wanted to do. You come across these all the time in the, in the Gospels where Jesus basically, David Bentley Hart said something to the effect of, Jesus clearly in the Gospels believes in salvation through actions, which is scandalous for evangelicals. I had somebody emailing me back and forth saying, well, what about what Paul said and all that stuff? And I just said, well, what about what Jesus said? <laughs> um, so 
tell us what your thoughts are on you win <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so two two questions flesh that out a little bit that you think christianity is more about how we live than what we believe and do you think jesus and paul are at odds or have we read paul wrongly okay uh <laughs> first one uh so yeah i think that christianity is not a metaphysical system that you decide to ascribe to just explain that for us non-philosophers yeah okay sorry so yeah i don't i don't think christianity is primarily a set of ideas about the world okay that you now are checking off and say i agree with this and this and this you know it's not just propositional assent to to statements or beliefs yes i think that mostly to be a jesus follower is to be the kind of person for whom you are living out a life of dependence on the grace of God. And that happens by living a certain way more than it is about what you articulate. Now, I, I also don't think there's a dichotomy between thinking and being, mm -hmm. do you know? Like, mm -hmm. I think we can articulate an integrity about that. But so for me, Christianity is much more about a set of practices than it is a collection of beliefs. And those practices, those rhythms and rituals and routines are really just means of us putting ourselves at the disposal of grace and then being committed to. So I also don't want I don't want to be a moralist about Christianity either. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like I, I, I think if being a Christian means that I'm always ethical, I'm screwed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's more like, no, I'm just this person who constantly avails himself of the sacraments or, you know, I'm, I'm, I put myself in the way of this community. And oftentimes there are Sundays I show up and I'm not sure I believe this, <laughs> mm -hmm. but my feet are sort of saying something or doing something. Cause I'm, cause I'm here. So uh, I, I think probably, uh, so much of American Protestantism is Pauline to the exclusion of Jesus. Yeah. I, I think there's a way to narrate the continuity between them. It's just that so much American Protestantism has happily set the Jesus stuff aside mm -hmm. and sort of fixated on epistles. Why? Because they look like they're about didactic propositions and beliefs and statements when I actually don't think that's the way to read Paul either. Hmm. What is the better way to read Paul then? I mean, I, I think Paul is also proclaiming here is a story that you should live into. I mean, he's giving you kind of the grammar of it, but I think it's only because Paul is presuming these communities that are living out ways of life. We're just getting the epistles, yes. right? We're getting the kind of like the it's like imagining you got a Greek grammar and you knew how to speak the language. It's insane. Mm. You've gotten this distilled little piece that really is almost like an artifact of what was a living, robust, messy community that lived out a way of life. And that just couldn't be handed down in quite the same way. So yeah. I think we get skewed perceptions. That's good. In a sense. Yeah. So another recurring theme in the book is a distinction you draw about thinking about the church's relation to history. And on one side is what you call primitivism, and on the other side is what you call Catholicity. Can you draw that distinction for the listeners and explain why you're more in favor of the latter? Yeah. So for me, primitivism is... and and. By the way, you could also call this originalism. Oh, okay. <laughs> but <laughs> um, so primitivism is is a posture to the past 
in which you assume or believe that there was this kind of original, pure deposit of the truth, usually in the first century, up to the first century. And now it's also why it always goes along with revivalism. So revivalism is always primitivist because what happens is somebody comes along in 1750 or 1828 or what 1906 and all of a sudden they're the ones who figured out what the pure original first century deposit said. Now what happens is if you have that primitivist view, you really think you're leapfrogging all of history to get back to that original pure deposit and it's like all the centuries intervening in between are Ichabod, right? The spirit has left the building, a pox on all those houses. Mm -hmm. Catholicity, in contrast, is really rooted in Jesus's promise in the Upper Room Discourse that the spirit will guide you into all truth over time, right? So it's it has this deeper sense that the spirit is present to the church across time, including all of those intervening centuries, and that there is a kind of unfurling and unfolding of illumination and insight. So it means that there are all kinds of gifts that keep getting handed down across time, rather than the leapfrog back to some sort of original, pristine, pure deposit. Does that, is that helpful? Mm -hmm. Very helpful. It sounds quite progressive. Uh, yeah. I, um, I don't mean what? that in a bad way. Personally. What if it is? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll, I'll just say this. I do think so. Here's I would I would love to stay with this for a second, because mm -hmm. on the one hand, I really am committed to describing that as Catholicity. Mm -hmm. do you know what I mean, like, I do think that that's the best form. I just don't think Rome or Constantinople own Catholicity. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I think it, this can, is available to wider Christian streams. I do think it's exactly why reform is always ongoing as we are inheriting what has gone before. Yep. And it is exactly why I don't think the expression of the faith is just static. Mm -hmm. And you probably notice, I mean, one of the key threads of the book is discernment. Mm -hmm. I think most of our work is trying to discern what it means to be faithful now. And I don't think that is ever just a matter of repristinating what we've done in the past yes. so yeah it's it's progressive but but only in the sense that oh i just think we're always getting smarter and better and do you know what i mean like mm -hmm. because you see how it's actually a posture to the past that receives the gifts of history gratefully yes. but for the sake of a future yeah it's also why i'm very critical of nostalgia Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think a nostalgia is another way of being pointed to the past where you're just trying to claw your way back to some sort of mythical golden era. Yep. Let me let me bounce to that question then, Kyle, quick, because I loved what you had to say about nostalgia. That's one of those threads that gets woven throughout the book. And you speak of it, obviously, in less than glowing terms, um, particularly in regard to looking back and trying to get back to the good old days. Can you tell us why you think that's an unhealthy perspective for Christians or for the church to have? It, first of all, you can see why it's a it's a um, constant temptation for Christians because we are a people of memory, right? Like there's so clearly a call to remember, mm -hmm. do this in remembrance of me. Um, but it's a disordered way of remembering, mostly because it is a romanticizing and an editing yes. of the past. Right. So it romanticizes some past as a golden age, as, you know, the um, 
the faithful times from which we have fallen, mm -hmm. but it also is so selective and edited and it turns out to be somebody's version of when it was really good for them yes. in the past, yes. right? And and by the way, that also usually turns out to be it was really good for white men. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's it's as if somebody watches Mad Men and thinks, "Oh man, look, I wish I lived then." Like, <laughs> Sides oh. with Don, yeah. Clearly, thinks he's the hero. I know who you are. <laughs> I, can, I, I don't even have to see you to know who you are if you think that that's a recipe for something to go back to. Yeah. So I, I think nostalgia is really alive and well today. I think it's a very reactionary posture and uh, it needs to be countered. Mm -hmm. So here's just similar to the last question that I just popped in there about progressivism. And this is not asking you to make a political statement. But yeah. as I read your stuff on nostalgia, it made me think... Does your idea of nostalgia equal conservatism? This ideal uh, that we have to get back to? For for um, who knows what conservatism means anymore. But yeah. yes, if if I do think the notion that the only way to be faithful is to conserve and turn back a clock and sort of repristinate a past, absolutely. I think that's not... Well, I'll just, I'll, I can say this. The big thread for me is not letting faithfulness be defined by being static mm -hmm. or recovery or mere conservation i instead of conserving a past i am more interested in how we inherit a past for the sake of a future that we are called to and i i hope that feels different right like i i think the difference with certain unthinking forms of progressivism is that they just throw away all mm -hmm. the gifts of the past mm -hmm. and this sort of let's burn it all to the ground and start anew well i you know you can usually see how that works out yes uh i'm i'm trying to sort of chart this not not a bland middle way but i i think that there are gifts both in the past and that we are called to in the future mm -hmm. yep so this is a decent segue into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which kind of revolves around, and this came up in the middle of the book, but then a few times towards the end as well, uh, revolves around maybe the confidence that the more progressive among us might have in our ability as a community to bring about the kind of eschaton we're looking for. Uh, so in the middle of the book, you, you quote Charles Taylor, the great Canadian philosopher, who says... There's a difference between a view which sees widespread willed social and political transformation as something to be done by those who would achieve regeneration and a view which sees the relevant social and political transformations as needing to be discerned and hence accepted and lived in the right spirit. I think he's talking about Hegel there. Yeah, um, and, exactly. then, and then you go on and you say, uh, there's a difference between believing we're the ones we've been waiting for and realizing we're called to join the spirit of God coursing through history. You ascribe the latter thing to Augustine, you call it the kind of Augustinian view, and the former thing you call Pelagian. Now, this would not be the first time I've been called Pelagian, but I think I take the former view <laughs> more, more, <laughs> yeah, yeah, more yeah. than the latter. Yeah. But to frame it up, I want to I wanna read something, a uh, famous passage from Martin Luther King Jr., and then I want you to tell me how what you said is consistent with what yeah. he said, because I, I suspect you think it is consistent. So he says he's talking about people who will say, give it time. Right. That's their counsel. And he says such an attitude stems from a tragic misconception of time. 
from the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time itself is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. Human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be the co-workers with God. And he goes on in a similar fashion. And I suspect you think what you're saying is totally consonant with that. But Amen. that, to me, sounds more Pelagian than Augustinian. So, no, so no, explain no. to me how it's not. So, and, and by the way, Martin Luther King Jr. was one of our great Augustinians. Mm. <laughs> um, honestly. Like, I mean, he's. Pr I think he's pretty explicit about yeah. that in some places. So I... I I would completely sign on to the way Dr. King articulates that. I think the difference is, did you see how, what was the end of the phrase? Are God's co-workers? Yeah. Yeah. So that, what I'm calling cultural Pelagianism there is where one is overconfident in the ingenuity and willful resourcefulness of humanity on its own. Mm-hmm. Right. So the difference for me between a kind of rationalist enlightenment progressivism versus an Augustinian orientation to reforming the future hinges on how much confidence you have in human ingenuity and willpower. And we, we might disagree on how much confidence to have. I'm just looking at history and thinking, yeah, eh, I don't see a lot. Instead, I think what Dr. King would say is saying there is it is a matter of us getting caught up in the way the spirit wants to reform the world and bend the arc of justice. Do you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. there's, we want the same thing. We want the same thing, which is a world where injustice is ebbing. I'm just less confident that humanity has the resources to do that on its own. That doesn't mean that we're sitting around twiddling our fingers waiting for God to come do it. No, it's precisely why we have to answer the call of the spirit in history and join. We are co-participants uh, in that work together, and we, but we do need the infusion of grace for that to happen. Yeah. So let me try to say why maybe thinking of it in that way makes me a little bit uncomfortable. So you yep. cite Niebuhr, uh, Reinhold, mm -hmm. I believe, mm -hmm. um, as, as saying that we have to remember that we're both creatures and creators. Uh, and then of you, and you, history, and yeah. you really stress the remembering that we're creatures part. And in my experience, the bigger danger is forgetting that we're creators. But that probably has to do with my history, <laughs> which is kind of the point so, of the book. Yeah. I, I, I think this is helpful. I think, we're always exercising demons. So the question is which, right? So mm -hmm. I'm, if I'm, if I'm offering caution to what I think it might be an overconfident progressivism at times, I'm going to lean into the fact to say, let's remember we're creatures. If I'm confronting a quietism, passivity, uh, you know, dispensationalist, who cares? It's all going to burn up. I'll be like, no, 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 no. You are called to make this world. We are shaping this world. And actually, right now, the only thing God has in the world is us. Uh, so, yeah, I, okay. I think it's probably a difference of emphasis, yeah. uh, on, yeah. given the <laughs> Let me ask then, Jamie, you know, you say you look back at human history and you doubt humanity's capacity to bring about that change and justice and all that stuff. The question that I have in that is, why do you think it is that when we look at our world today, the ones who are doing more, and I know that Christians do a lot of good work. I really do. I lead a church and like to think that we've done good work. But why do you think it is that it seems like 
people not in the church and people not following Jesus or supposedly not in tune with the Holy Spirit are doing more work of justice and liberation than the church itself. That seems like the church is actually fighting against works of justice and liberation. How does that Yeah, I would say, I know exactly what you mean. I would say, first of all, let's not let our purview be limited to the American American Christianity. Okay. And let's also not let our purview be limited to right now. Because I think the fact is, if you think of the deep, long legacies of so many institutions of mercy, care, and justice, they have long Christian legacies. Sure. Do you know what I mean? And if, and if you and I went to war-torn regions right now in the horror of of ukraine for example you are going to find a lot of christians on the front lines Mm -hmm. doing work that you and i would never think we might be tweeting about whatever we're outraged about in the united states today but they are on the front line doing that so i think empirically if we were going to settle it out thankfully i think the body of christ is doing better than what you would guess from looking at you know america yes okay i i fully agree yeah so i want to ask you about iphones real quick (laughs) um so somewhere in the middle of the book you you cite that famous picture that circulated it was a contrast of two pictures one uh, both of Tiger Woods, one from when he was winning whatever, t- I'm not a sports guy, so whatever tournament yep. he won. Um, and everybody was like wrapped with attention to what he was going on, everybody in the crowd. In like and 1997. Then, and, and the, yeah, in the 90s. And then just a couple of years ago, I guess he did it again. And everybody in the crowd's holding up their phone, recording yeah. and taking pictures of yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the point of the meme is some version of kids these days, <laughs> right? Like, we, like, you know, they're not actually there to experience the moment because they want to capture the moment so they can experience it later. And that is a point that you kind of defend in the book. And I guess I'm less convinced of that. So um, have, have the observers in situations like that actually missed the opportunity to experience the moment, as you put it, or have they experienced the moment in a mode that earlier humans might have had a harder time recognizing? And I'm wondering this because, one, I'm a millennial, and <laughs> I, I used to be very much against taking i wouldn't take my phone anytime i was gonna like the practice you describe having gotten to used to be my practice i would never take pictures and then i gradually learned to value that kind of experience and now i get a much richer experience of having the record and i don't feel that it necessarily takes away from the experience there are probably a handful of experiences i still would keep it in my pocket but but they're the minority Um, and also i've been kind of convinced by extended mind arguments and philosophy of mind about we really need to take seriously how much of an extension of ourselves these devices are at this point. And so I'm just curious uh, if you're willing to fudge on that at all. (laughs) No, I I still take pictures. I would say that the context of the conversation in the book is more importantly is Sally Mann, who's a fine arts photographer, Mm -hmm. who of course was struck by the fact that she couldn't just conjure up memories of her father in the same way because in an ironic way, she had outsourced all of her memorization of her father to the photograph she had taken of him. So that's an interesting dynamic, because mm-hmm. I, I think you're right. Embodied, extended cognition in our devices, we all do. I'm all for it. Like, I don't ever want to have to, like, try to memorize directions anywhere. <laughs> it's just a stupid use of brain capacity to do that. On the other hand, if I'm ever in prison, I want to be able to remember poetry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so I'm a little worried that I'm losing some certain kinds of capacities of what I can carry with me in my body. 
I, I, this is, I have no strong feelings about this, except I do think there's something about a kind of attention yes. that happens. And, and if we go back to what we were saying before, you know, I'm kind of interested in attention and intention. I do think there's a kind of attention that happens when I know, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of this summer, I'm paddleboarding up the Frio River in this unbelievable canyon in the Texas Hill Country. And at the time, I'm trying to be quite intentional about the fact that I'm not taking photos. And so I'm absorbing it. And now in a cold February Michigan winter, I'm going to be able to sort of call that up for myself in a way that feels different than just looking at my iPhone memories from that day. I, but, I, you know, let many flowers bloom. <laughs> um, I, I just think there's something about a way of attending to the world that makes us available to the experience, I, which is all that I'm interested in. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think that story is super interesting of that photographer being able to picture her friend who she has no photos of, like he's right there with her yes. rather than her yeah. father. That's it's so interesting. Yeah. Um, jumping forward to your chapter in the book called Embrace the Ephemeral. I loved it. I could have just read. Thank you. It's kind of my favorite chapter. So that really means a lot. It's not even kind of my favorite chapter. It's by far my favorite chapter. <laughs> That's um, awesome. It rooted me in the beauty of now. I mean, even just this thought of autumnal leaves turning colors and dying as they're doing that and giving us these gifts of color. And it caused me literally to raise my eyes and look up at my oak tree leaves that I was canopied with as I was reading your book and just enjoying mm. those leaves for what they are, you know. Um, but in it, you say, and I love this quote, and I want you to just elaborate for our listeners. You say, the trick is to live fully present in the moment without being defined by the zeitgeist. Can you flesh that out for us a little bit? Yeah. Um, so first of all, I, I think it's helping, going back to something you said earlier, in a way, sometimes people who are believers experience this tension between what they think they are supposed to affirm theologically and what they actually like. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so this is about trying to put these things together and say to embrace the ephemeral is to appreciate the fleetingness and there's nothing in christian hope and eschatology that prevents us from saying even though this is going to pass away it is a good gift to me right now in this moment yeah so I, I i want us to sort of lean in and say that's part of the beauty of being mortal but to then so to to receive the now without being defined by the now mm -hmm. That's where the resistance to the zeitgeist, I, it's not, I don't want you to think that I don't think we should be attuned and attentive to what's happening around us. We always need to be speaking to that, but we need to have resources that stretch us beyond just our temporal moment. Otherwise, I think what happens is we become so susceptible to the tyranny of the present and the tyranny of the urgent and what what starts happening is you fritter away your identity because you don't know who you are until somebody tells you how you're supposed to be reacting right now wow. and i think that's that's a that's a very um disempowering place to be i think folks need a kind of capacity to be stretched beyond just the, the present it's mm -hmm. brilliant friends before we continue we want to thank story hill bkc for their support Storyhill BKC is a full menu restaurant and their food is seriously some of the best in Milwaukee. 
On top of that, Story Hill BKC is a full-service liquor store featuring growlers of tap available to go, spirits, especially whiskeys and bourbons, thoughtfully curated regional craft beers, and 375 selections of wine. Visit StoryHillBKC.com for menu and more info. If you're in Milwaukee, you'll thank yourself for visiting Story Hill BKC. And if you're not, remember to support local. One more time, that's StoryHillBKC.com. You, in the book, you use Ecclesiastes and the voice of Kohelet, the teacher, um, is kind of an anchoring point, you know, meditations before, between chapters, and it's brilliant. Um, okay. I love Ecclesiastes, but it's a, it's a rough book, you know, and it's, it is. it's very, it's, which is why it hardly ever gets preached on. It seems to me in it, a lot of Protestant churches. I would agree. We were, I was preaching through Ecclesiastes and right in the middle of our study in Ecclesiastes, COVID happened and it was perfect. <laughs> it was just <laughs> so, perfect. But. I mean, Ecclesiastes is littered with landmines for a Christian bookstore version of Christianity that tells us <laughs> that everything's going to be great and we'll all be swept up on eagle's wings if we just trust in Jesus, right? What is it about Ecclesiastes and the voice of Kohelet that you find profound and speaks to you? Yeah, I, I like the way you framed that. It is such an utterly honest appraisal of the human condition. Mm -hmm. And... There is, it's not a mistake that it's grouped in what we call our wisdom literature, right? So there is this kind of sort of philosophical reflective capacity about it. I, I think the other thing that attracted me, you know, so I'm in my 50s now, which feels ancient. <laughs> and it is the voice of an old person. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's the <laughs> voice of someone who's been through it. Mm -hmm. And the older I get the more I'm interested in shutting up and listening to the people who've been through it, mm -hmm. you know, who have undergone and to realize that I have many gifts to receive from what they have endured and made it out to the other side. And that's what I, I think reading Ecclesiastes felt like, oh no, this is somebody who's been through it and is now sending a message in a bottle back across the river to mm -hmm. maybe I haven't gone through it all yet. And he sort of like be prepared. And I, I guess I appreciate the utter honesty and that that the that the history of the church saw fit to include that in the canon of scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Says something about an honest Christianity. Yeah. I yeah. yeah. Something that we've lost. Yeah. I mean, something that Kohelet was actually a heretic and didn't really believe in in the gut, right? But we've yeah. included that into the narrative. It's fascinating. Yes. Let's... Yeah. It's like it's like Psalms of Lament, too. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I think those are such an integral minor chord moment of the scriptures. And as you say, in American Christianity in particular, it seems to me we want to race ahead to the happy ending yeah. and to be reminded of these uh, yeah. difficult moments is important. Yep. So we hinted at this at the beginning of the interview. We're coming to the close of our time but the music you highlighted you spent mm. thousands of dollars it blows me away that that shows the love and importance of music in your world mm -hmm. we don't love... tell my wife by the way too. <laughs> <laughs> we we love you know this is public right <laughs> <laughs> she's I'm not assuming... listening to my podcast just to be clear <laughs> i was gonna say if she's listening to all your podcast episodes good on her um but we love music, and the ones that stuck, I love the Avet Brothers um, that spoke so much to what it means to be American and what it means to live in that tension and dilemma. But 
the ones that I was drawn to because I love these songs and these artists is Brandy Carlisle's Every Time I Hear That Song, you said it's become like a sacrament to you. Yeah. And then I want to hit on the Fleet Foxes, I'm Not My Season. Um, yeah. Why has Every Time I Hear That Song become like a sacrament to you, first off? Man, I, I have to tell you. So partly, I, I'm not going to treat you as my therapist, but like, <laughs> I'll just say, I've got some shit in my life. Do you know what I mean? Like Amen, really, brother. really pretty deep uh, traumatic stuff. And... And, and and that song is about the possibility of moving forward in a way that both names, why it shouldn't have to happen, why it couldn't possibly happen, and then how it might happen. And uh, it, to me, it's, it's, and, and Brandy's voice is actually, I think, a really, really important part of it. Part, yeah. part of the struggle of just citing lyrics in a, in a book is, uh, you don't get the voice. What I do is mm -hmm. I create a Spotify playlist to go with the book so that people can go and find the songs and listen to it. Yes. Because I think the the range and timber of Brandy's voice so embodies the brokenness and hope at yep. the same time. And so honestly, she that song kind of helped me imagine a way forward in a relationship that i didn't know might have been possible yeah. and uh music a lot of music has done that for me too like music has probably been just such a constant companion jason isbell the avid brothers it's it's all part of the sonic wallpaper of my life and i think it's means of grace yeah no i mean that song in particular sounds like somebody who's done the hard work of trying to fit this traumatic experience into her story mm -hmm. and doesn't end it even on, by the way, I forgive you, but mm -hmm. then says, and by the way, I'm also kind of grateful for what happened because now it's I'm incredible. Now maybe I, I should thank you. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's I should like, thank you. Yeah. And I remember when I first kind of like, you know how you hear a song a few times, and you're not really listening and then you listen to it and you're like, no, that's, that's wrong. You shouldn't be saying that's absolutely wrong. Yeah. You shouldn't be saying, yeah. and then you say with it a few more times, you're like, okay, I think I maybe understand how somebody could say that. Could I say that? What would it look like? Yeah, mm -hmm. it's powerful. You yep. noted in the book had the flippancy with which the lyric comes across. By the way, this such yeah. deep, profound thing, and it hadn't occurred to me like that's the that's what she titled the album. I've listened to that album probably a hundred times, <laughs> and, and it had never occurred to me to see that insight in it. So yeah. yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. No, it's beautiful. And then probably my favorite band, Fleet Foxes. You uh, speak yeah. to, I think the some of their most profound lyrics. The I'm not the season that I'm in. Um, yes. I love that so much. Tell us about how that came out in your chapter well and it's uh, it's and again they're very kind of plaintive i would almost call it a contemplative sound do you mm -hmm. know what i mean mm -hmm. like there's a there's a there's almost a, a hint of a kind of chant about it it's sometimes. haunting it's haunting it's very haunting and so then when you kind of keep dwelling with it and the insight sort of swells for you right and then you just hear it as this incredible it's almost like a benediction yes you are not what you're going through right now yeah. you are not defined by this moment Come you on. are not your season you're in a season and and i think a lot of people need permission to recognize that i think that's the other chapter that means a lot to me is the chapter on seasonality where it's yeah. like okay what does it mean to take seriously the fact that i'm in the middle of a season and it gives you permission to both name it but then also say i'm not defined by this and i sometimes i just have to get through it um it's a it's a really beautiful i'm very excited by the way did you see they're publishing a collection of fleet fox's lyrics 
as sort of poetry and it's going to be introduced by one of my favorite contemporary writers brandon taylor so i'm very excited to see that that's fun that's super fun really yeah. cool before we let you go i have to ask have you seen the movie about time i know i haven't oh so my god me. you have to watch it you, you could call it a rom-com but it's not I, i'm not going to describe it for you it, okay. It, okay it transcends genre barriers it has a wonderful cast and it's the best movie about nostalgia ever made fantastic yep. i might download this for my next flight okay Do it. great there you go thanks for the tip i think we're at the end of our time so thanks this so much for joining us I, I gotta say man the book is really good moved me to tears more than once thank you um, so and you much could... no i really appreciate you guys were very very close readers so that's an honor that means a lot as an author to yeah. be able to interact and it's a great model of how philosophy can actually transform a life i think so, so. let's yeah. have more of it i hope yeah, yeah. thank yeah. you so much once more the book is how to inhabit time by james k A. smith jamie thank you so much for joining us really my pleasure thanks for a rich conversation i appreciate it well that's it for this episode of a pastor and a philosopher walk into a bar we hope you're enjoying the show as much as we are. Help us continue to create compelling content and reach a wider audience by supporting us at patreon.com forward slash a pastor and a philosopher, where you can get bonus content, extra perks, and a general feeling of being a good person. Also, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Spotify. These help new people discover the show, and we may even read your review in a future episode, if it's good enough. If anything we said really pissed you off, or if you just have a question you'd like us to answer, or if you'd just like to send us booze, send us an email at pastorandphilosopher at gmail.com. Catch all of our hot takes on Twitter at, at PPWBpodcast, at Randy Nye, and at Robert K. Whitaker, and find transcripts and links to all of our episodes at pastorandphilosopher.buzzsprout.com. See you next time. Cheers.